guest today, Mr. Robert Greenway, is currently an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, a Washington, D.C. think tank, and executive director of the Abraham Accords Peace Institute. He's an experienced public servant with over 30 years of service and dedication in the U.S. government. While serving on the National Security Council, he developed U.S. policy for the Middle East and North Africa, having previously served as a senior U.S. intelligence officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency and previously as an Army Special Forces combat veteran. He played an important role in the removal of some of the world's most dangerous terrorist leaders, as well as reducing the profile of ISIS leadership in Syria and Iraq. Mr. Greenway was also a principal architect of the historic Abraham Accords, the most significant diplomatic breakthrough in Middle East peace since 1994. He holds a BA from Virginia Military Institute and a master's with honors from Webster's University in St. Louis. He's a highly decorated veteran and holds the Legion of Merit Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary, Expeditionary Medal, and the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Greenway. Afternoon, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be with you all. Uh, any opportunity to get outside the D.C. area uh, is certainly a welcome one, uh, and it's always great to be back in Texas, so thank you all for having me. I want to thank certainly the World Affairs Council, uh, Liz Brailsford, thank you very much for having me, AJC Dallas, uh, so Joel Schwitzer, Harriet Whiting, uh, and Mr. and Mrs. Termini. Uh, again, a great pleasure to be with all of you today, and thanks, of course, to uh, Haynes and Boone for uh, sponsoring this event. My goal in the next uh, 15 minutes or so is to set the stage for good question and answers um, because I look forward to that most. I'm sure you do too. Um, and, uh, and hopefully in the next couple of minutes I can at least give you a little bit of framework behind uh, the origins of the Accords themselves, the purpose of the conversation today. Uh, second, how things are going uh, at the moment and where we can expect things to go in the coming weeks and what it's going to take to get there. Um, I would make three points overall, I think, in looking uh, at each of those particular questions. The first is, um, you know, these agreements were conducted to safeguard U.S. interests in the region and they're critical to U.S. interests in the region. They also are a incredibly important aspect of securing Israel's security of the region, which is a core component of ours. And so that's, in, that's incredibly important to remember. And as we'll probably talk about, this is a, an important time for that to be so because in my judgment, this next year uh, or two is gonna be some of the most difficult in Israel's history and some of the most difficult for the United States in the region. Perhaps the most difficult since 1979, perhaps the most difficult since 1947. And there's a number of reasons for it. And so agreements like this, Israel's relationship with its neighbors becomes centrally important to their and our security. This was a, a process that didn't happen overnight. It, it can seem that way even to those of us that were involved in it. Uh, from the period of August to December of 20, it seems like there was an agreement uh, popping up at regular intervals. 
which is true. Um, the reality is that there was a fair bit of work in order to get there. Uh, and the reality is there's a fair bit of work that's going to have to happen uh, now that we've concluded those agreements. The last is uh, for organizations like the one that I'm privileged to lead, and I think for those represented here today, we all have a critical role in sustaining, strengthening, and expanding the Accords ties. Again, as I said, the U.S. was central to making this happen. The U.S. role, all of us, uh, inclusive of that, is going to be critical to sustaining it going forward. And because it's so critical to our interests in the region and to Israel's interests, uh, it is, in my judgment, and I think all of our judgments, a priority. So that's the background. The first, then, is on origins. And so uh, understanding that everyone here is well familiar with events and with the, the, the accords themselves, uh, hopefully we can uh, cover perhaps some new ground or less appreciated or less well-discussed ground. Uh, a couple of points on origins uh, up front. Uh, first, conventional wisdom at the time uh, we uh, came into the previous administration, and as stated, I always get nervous when I'm called a civil servant because I'd never think that's a compliment, but uh, there's some truth in it, I suppose. Um, but at the end of the day, when we came in uh, to the, in the previous administration, the conventional wisdom, I think, as everyone recognizes, was that until you resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you can't make improvements between Israel's relationship with its neighbors. That was the conventional wisdom, and it had been held for decades, and some still, uh, I think, are holding on to that, insisting that the accords won't endure. Now, obviously, uh, our view and, frankly, the view of many nations in the region was exactly the opposite. Despite public comments, which can be a little bit different, uh, private conversations would all let us to conclude that this was absolutely not the case, that they had no intention uh, of allowing that one issue hold all other issues hostage. And so that recognition on our part uh, came. And so we recognized there's a big disconnect between the conventional wisdom held by many in government and in foreign policy circles uh, and the reality on the ground when it comes to Israel's neighborhood. And so early on, the goal was, how do we rectify that? And, and obviously, uh, the Accords was one result of it. The second is uh, simple, I think, and well appreciated, but it's important to mention that trust is critical to it. Trust was critical. Uh, many of us had decades-long relationships with these countries and their leadership at multiple levels. Uh, and without that, I think it would have been difficult for us to proceed. Absent that level of fundamental trust, it's almost impossible to proceed because of the nature and the complexity associated with these relationships. And, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, about the core components of that trust, but one of the fundamental areas of, uh, of agreement and trust came with a recognition of what was the most important enemies and threats to their national security. And we agreed with them on this, right? We agreed that terrorism and Iran as a state sponsor of terrorism was a fundamental risk to their security, peace, and prosperity. This was uh, an article of absolute faith for all countries in the region, Israel and its neighbors. And that recognition gave us an enormous amount of capital. And we acted accordingly, uh, not always to the degree that I think they would have liked to have seen, but I think in large measure they would agree that we acted on that belief. That trust was essential. And the last is our fundamental principle that we would support our friends and we would confront our enemies. Again, it sounds simple, but I think it's important to mention. And for them, it wasn't always the case. We did a lot of what I like to refer to as sort of support group meetings and therapy sessions with our partners and allies about this issue. I can't speak for the other parts of the world. I'm sure my colleagues that handled Europe and Asia had their own version of support group meetings in various stages for different reasons. But for us, it was one of sympathy. We came in at uh, the exact same perspective. And so 
what they had seen in previous administrations was alarming to them. Uh, it was once explained to me that if you came from another planet and landed in the second uh, term of the Obama administration, you would conclude that uh, Egypt, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the Gulf states were America's enemies and that Iran was uh, America's friend. That was the conclusion that they all drew, and that was a difficult thing for them. And again, the trust that we bore in, in a, a approaching this from a very different perspective gave us enormous amount of capital, and that capital was translated ultimately into the agreements that we call the Abraham Accords. Now, the other thing I think that uh, doesn't get as much attention and I think is important is what we were trying to achieve uh, in the Middle East and North Africa from the beginning uh, as a whole, of which the Abraham Accords is one component of it. And the way to look at it uh, is constructive and destructive. The destructive element of our foreign policy from the beginning, even before the president's trip to Riyadh in May of 17, was to destroy ISIS and to confront and contain the threat from Iran. That's the destructive element of the policy. The constructive element was to leverage our investment in Israel, which is historic and significant, and is a bedrock of our policy and position in the region, and to build on that and improve their relations with their neighbors and develop a new enduring regional security architecture. So the constructive and destructive elements of our policy were consistent the entire time that we were there. It was applied differently, but that was the general basis of it. The destructive element aside, but happy to talk about it if there's interest. Uh, the constructive element, again, two parts, the normalization process, Israel and its neighbors, and this new enduring regional security architecture, which for those of you who may recall was the Middle East Strategic Alliance, also referred to as the Arab NATO. That's being resurrected in principle because I think it's sound. Ultimately, the cooperation between Israel's neighbors should encompass the security domain as well as the diplomatic and the economic and the cultural. And hopefully that'll gain traction because we need a team on the field in the region. We don't need individual players with whom we have relationships. It's inefficient, it's ineffective. Uh, it's also not the way we do business elsewhere. Now the path we took started again early on. I can't speak again uh, for uh, other uh, sectors of our foreign policy, but uh, on this one from the period of time I was involved, certainly I think we were consistent. Uh, from the trip in Riyadh in 17, the president laid out almost explicitly what our goals were. Um, I just gave you the sort of thumbnail sketch from the person behind it. Uh, that commenced, I think, and that trajectory continued through the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital in 17, through the conference we held in Warsaw with all regional leaders in Israel included, and the broad recognition publicly stated, which everyone knew, is the primary threat to Middle East regional stability and security is Iran. And on that basis, we can cooperate. Now, uh, I'll also say that uh, some of the agreements, uh, two of them specifically, that were concluded uh, in the Abraham Accords with UAE and, and ultimately with Morocco, were on the table the year before in their form that they were accepted. Morocco first in the summer, uh, and we had debated this issue but didn't have the political position to overcome opposition. Uh, and uh, there's good reason for it. Ultimately, that circumstance changed and we concluded it. But the agreement, what Morocco expected and what the United States was willing to do, was in existence the year before. The Emirates, uh, by December of the year uh, of uh, 19, was also uh, on the table in its uh, final form. Uh, the conditions were not yet right for it uh, to be adopted, but the deal was there. And so these did not emerge immediately. Uh, peace to prosperity and, uh, and the, the entirety of the plan presented in January of 20 
uh, on the Israel-Palestine issue in particular really had to be put out publicly in between the myriad of, of Israeli elections. And for those of you following news, we're, we may be headed to another one with the coalition now uh, uh, potentially falling apart. And so we were caught between Israeli news cycles and election cycles, and we had to eventually get that plan out before I think we could focus on the accords. All the while, uh, again, on the destructive side, we were pursuing an aggressive policy against Iran and its terrorist surrogates and proxies, which, again, was important to maintain these relationships. They had to take us seriously. They had to know that we were on their side. We were in their corner, and I think they were convinced of it. So at the end of the day, uh, in, by the time we got into August uh, of 20, we were in a position to address uh, and to take advantage of the trust and of the capital and of the shared positions that we had obtained up to that point. And annexation uh, or the extension of Israeli sovereignty over Palestinian territories was, as you know, in the news. And that created ultimately an opportunity for us to execute the deal that was already in place. And the Emirates, uh, to their credit, um, I think made absolutely the right call and became the first and became instrumental in encouraging and supporting our negotiations with Bahrain, uh, which was secured thereafter. All the while, uh, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and uh, we talked about it earlier with, uh, with some of you that this is one of the few bright spots in an otherwise dark uh, global context, and it remains one. Uh, and it was recognized then. Uh, and it continues to be, and I think that that is important, uh, certainly for all of us. Uh, we did the White House signing ceremony in September. Uh, we commemorate that every year. We'll do so again in D.C. this year. Hopefully, uh, we look forward to seeing many or all of you there. If, if you're available, we'd love to have you. Um, and, uh, and then it was followed by uh, agreements with uh, uh, Kosovo actually preceded the signing ceremony. For our purposes, they're part of the Abraham Accords family. And the normalization of relations moving their embassy to Jerusalem was important, and we don't forget that. Sudan uh, followed its own interesting path uh, and still does, uh, and we're very keen to make sure they don't fall out of the boat entirely. Uh, happy to talk about it at greater length, but at the end of the day, Sudan judged that it was necessary to become reintegrated into the community of nations. They took steps after Bashir's deposition, and we uh, lifted our state sponsor of terrorism designation. That allowed us to do business with and provide aid and assistance to the people of Sudan. And that allowed them then to make the decision to normalize relations with Israel and reverse the, th the, the famous three no's from Khartoum. And again, we're taking steps to keep them on side as we speak. And then, uh, you know, Morocco, uh, finally at the end, where as all of you I think know, the strong relationship between the two populations, so many Israelis are of Moroccan descent. At that time, uh, a good chunk of the ministers were of Moroccan descent, and the National Security Advisor then, Mayor Ben Shabbat, good friend, uh, his family's from Morocco, and he addressed the people in Morocco after the first flight in Derija uh, and made an enormous impact. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. 
And that relationship continues uh, to bear fruit now that they're traveling freely. So we concluded uh, five normalization agreements between August and December. It took some time to get there. It was based on trust. It certainly advanced U.S. interests. Uh, but these relationships are new. So the, the next question then is how are, how are things developing? How are things going now? And the answer is I think if we asked most people, they'd say things seem to be going well. One, it, it, it's still here. It survived uh, the conflict in Gaza early last year. It survives the tension between the region and uh, the United States uh, politically. Uh, and uh, it survived each other, right? So they're still friends with each other, uh, notwithstanding uh, Sudan sort of in a holding pattern. So progress is being made. And on the diplomatic front, we saw just uh, a week ago the summit in the Negev where the foreign ministers met and included the uh, Egyptian foreign minister. Unfortunately, uh, Foreign Minister Safadi from Jordan didn't go for all kinds of obvious reasons, but it's unfortunate. But the rest of the Accords members were there. And I think that was important. Uh, that was also important for them to provide one voice to Secretary Blinken and the current administration on their views of what is important and what threatens their security and stability. And that was the purpose behind that meeting, and rightly so. On the economic front, uh, $1.5 billion of trade between the Accord signatories, again, with the restrictions of travel and the, and the COVID pandemic. Uh, a 511% increase between trade in Israel and the Emirates alone. That's year over year from 20 to 21. It is going to do a lot more over the course of this year and already is. However, uh, there are some countries uh, in the bilateral relationship where there's a lot of work to be done. So the Israel-Emirates uh, economic connections are moving along like gangbusters, but it's not progressing as fast with Bahrain or with Morocco and with Egypt and Jordan. Frankly, it's a missed opportunity. Still about half a billion dollars uh, in either direction with Jordan and about a quarter uh, annually with Egypt. It should be in the billions. And our aim is to get it to that place. So progress-wise, I think things are working out very well, but the connections are very new. Our institute was established largely because they're new and because additional work has to be done. We spent a lot of time connecting individuals, public and private, across governments because we have relationships in both. We understand their decision-making process, and so we're able to help engineer outcomes uh, to ease the progress uh, along. And we're the only people that are working on this issue 24 hours a day, unfortunately, in any country. And we'll probably be that for a while. Um, but it's important on implementation, obviously, to follow through on this. And so we serve to be that default secretariat until one is established to look after the accords and to pursue expansion. On the security front, it's uh, likewise, it was equally important. And Bahrain now has uh, an Israeli officer serving full time. Uh, in the kingdom, which is unique and uh, unprecedented. They're participating in naval exercises together in the Arabian Gulf. I don't say Persian Gulf for obvious reasons. Um, it's also part of my defense background. Uh, but uh, there is also a burgeoning security relationship between Israel and Morocco. There will be one, I think, with the Emirates once they can overcome the sort of uh, intelligence sharing and security cooperation at a deeper level. That's in, in the works and hopefully it'll materialize. So the security and on the diplomatic front, I think they're finding a voice together as a group. Uh, they're exercising it, as we saw in the negative. On the security front, the relationship is moving at different paces, but it is proceeding. The economic is moving at a substantially good pace, um, but there is a, a lot more potential. Uh, the last I would say before I go to, to, progr to progress uh, to prospects and what we can expect in the year ahead 
and then take questions, is that we look at this, especially in economic, in three ways, in sort of three concentric circles. The economic benefit between Israel and any one country, the bilateral relationships, they're the foundation, but the economic benefit is, is reasonable, but it's not exceptional. Uh, if, you, if you draw it out and look at the collective cooperation between all the countries and the plurilateral uh, uh, arrangement with reductions to barriers to trade, the economic potential is significant, uh, very significant, enough to reduce impediments. But the real growth and the real potential in this is integration with global markets. So the accords as they sit between the European Asian markets and American markets. Well, if you want to move things from point A to point B, it's easier to do it in the accords framework now than it was before. Financial transactions and the movement of information equally easier now. And the potential to enable and to play a constructive role between global markets is where the real potential is. Getting them there is going to take some work, uh, but we're committed to it. So last on prospects, what can we expect for? First, though, too, that, again, this is a bulwark, and it has to be maintained. Uh, it's a hedge against uncertainty and risk for Israel and for the United States. And as I said earlier, this could be one of the worst year or two years in Israel's history and uh, for U.S. interests in the Middle East because uh, the correlation of threats against Israel at this time is unprecedented. The, the degree to which they have foes that have the ability to extend beyond the conventional uh, military advantage that Israel has and pursue asymmetric options that they cannot defend against adequately is significant. They can't deal with a threat from Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen at the same time, and that's excluding Iran behind it all. Uh, if, you, if you add all of those at a near simultaneous basis, the ability to defend and protect against that becomes negligible very, very quickly. And so it's important for bulwarks like the Abraham Accords, Israel's relationship with its neighbors in all domains, to hedge against that uncertainty and that risk, and all of us to strengthen and support them as they do so. And the integration, we believe, economically, culturally, uh, diplomatically, from a security standpoint, that's what makes countries defend each other. If they trade between each other, if they have relationships and do business with each other, they're less likely to engage in conflict. Uh, they'll keep it to competition. And that's not always the case, but I think that's largely true. That was certainly a goal for us. When it comes to expansion, we can talk about it in Q&A. Uh, I think the odds are good that we'll see expansion of the Accords, perhaps as soon as the next couple of months. Frankly, I think there's no reason why it couldn't. Conditions are there. Uh, hopefully, it'll be the case. I won't say which uh, country or, or countries may be the next to join because those are sensitive. Um, but I will say that the odds are good that the Accords expand, and they should. Uh, second, I think that uh, integration, again, between the countries and economies will continue to expand, not without threats. Uh, not without risk, and it's going to take concerted effort for them to overcome those uh, isolated uh, economies that they've built by design. And, and last, uh, I think uh, it, again, is important to remember that uh, we built these accords, again, to advance U.S. interests in the region and to solidify Israel's position. And for the United States to, uh, no matter what end of the political spectrum you're in, there's a strong desire to withdraw resources from the Middle East, this is the inevitable pendulum swing. Most of you can remember us going from both extremes. We're now moving to the other extreme. We will, I'm sure, go back to the other, uh, probably after another crisis or conflict. But as we stand right now, everyone's looking for that middle ground. Uh, how do you balance U.S. interests in the region but do so with less resources? And the answer is, in my view, Israel with a better relationship and a better security architecture with its neighbors. The Abraham Accords are a critical component of that. 
So if we can put a team on the field to represent and defend and protect our interests with our support and assistance, I think that's how we get to the middle. I think that's how we stop swinging from one extreme to the other. It's good for us. It's good for Israel. It's good for our partners that are taking this historic step with Israel. I'll pause there, and I look forward to your questions. And again, thank you very, very much for having me.